just one, one thing about the announcements and the table out there. Um, Kids Hope is a ministry that we love, and we that's mentoring in the uh, in at Silver Lake Elementary School, and that is uh, getting started this spring. It'll be a big push this fall, and we'd love for you to be part of it. The table out there is a different hope. It's Christ's hope, and so if you sponsor a little kiddo from Africa through the ministry Christ's Hope, that table is there for you to um, to write a note of encouragement um, to the, uh, the the children that this church sponsors, which I think is in the ballpark of, of 70, 70 kids. So. Um, if that's you, stop by the table. Uh, it, your kiddo would love to have some encouragement from you. <clears throat> All right, we're jumping right in. This is Matthew uh, part 5, and as you just heard read, it is uh, the second half of chapter 2. And if you ever wondered how it is, um, you just heard how Scott ended up in Traverse City. Well, this is how Jesus ended up in Nazareth. This is how he ended up, uh, th that being his, his, uh, his hometown, and uh, how, he, how he landed there. And it is full of a lot of, of complicated, uh, complicated things. And so we're going get, to get right, right to it. F first, we see that, that the family has to flee, right? Uh, in those first few verses, um, you know, you, you could say, let's just gospel. And so far, you know, we've, we've, had, uh, we've had some things happening. We've had some, some complicated stuff. We have a, a, a scandalous genealogy that's got uh, people listed there that you wouldn't normally want to include in your genealogy. Uh, we have a teenager, a uh, teenager who's not married, uh, getting pregnant, and that's, that's a scandal. Uh, but now, here in chapter 2, we get some, some death threats. Ba baby Jesus gets a, a death threat. Um, the, the wise men, or the magi, who we read about in the first half of the chapter, they, they, if you look at verse 12, they get warned in a dream that Herod's intentions are not good. So Herod is the one who helped them find Jesus in Bethlehem by referencing the word of the Lord and saying that the, the star was going to, uh, where, where the, the Messiah was going to be born. And so Herod points them in the right direction. They go and find him. It's what we looked at last week. And it's this beautiful moment where they realize who he is and they fall down uh, in worship. But then as that uh, unfolds in verse 12, they are warned in a dream. Don't go back and tell Herod about this because Herod's intentions are not good. And so the Magi, the wise men, they, they depart and they went another way. They didn't go back to see Herod. Well, the angel's not done talking. The angel told the wise men, don't do that. Well, the angel then comes and tells uh, Mary and Joseph uh, that there's trouble on the, on the, on the horizon. And, and the angel tells them, rise, take the child. And his mother tells Joseph to search for the child to destroy him. So they did it. They took, they took Jesus, Mary and Joseph did. And uh, they departed um, in the night and went to, uh, went to Egypt. And so uh, the word on the street is Herod is going to try to kill Jesus. In the next verse, uh, verse 16, Herod, he sees that the wise men didn't come back, that his little plan to, to take out Jesus, to get the information, his plan didn't work. And so uh, Herod decides to, uh, to go on the offensive. And it says that he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. And so Herod responds with an incredible amount of aggression. As our volunteers gathered for prayer this morning, I was sharing with them a little bit about the text that we were looking at. And, you know, so far uh, in, in, in chapter two, we, we've, uh, you know, we, we're looking at like the nativity stuff. You know, maybe you have a nativity scene that you put out at Christmas and you've got Mary and Joseph and you got a little manger and a little baby that goes in that manger. You got animals, 
And then you've got usually three decked out, well, you know, wise men who they, they get to be part of the nativity. Um, but like verse 11 is about as far as we want to go in the nativity uh, scene. Uh, we, I've never seen a nativity scene with Herod chasing after them, with Herod uh, announcing death threats uh, of, the, of this, this uh, potentially two-year-old uh, Jesus. And so it's a, uh, it's a shocking passage of Scripture. It's a, it's a disruptive passage of Scripture. It is, a, it is certainly a death threat. It's a death threat to Jesus, but it's a death threat to the region, and it's a death threat by the king. And the king decides, he, he uses the math that the, that the wise men were using uh, in regard to when they saw the star and where. And so he looks at that region and he says, okay, it's been in the ballpark of two to three years. So to be safe, every child two and under that's a male, I'm taking them all out. I'm taking every one of them out in order to solve this potential threat to my reign as king. And so... Um, the angel tells Mary and Joseph, this is what's going to happen. Uh, but then we find out in a few verses that that's indeed what did happen. Um, you know, you, maybe you remember when they were in the headlines a little bit more. They're not gone from the earth, but ISIS and how ISIS was, was racing through the Middle East and just doing all kinds of terrible, terrible things. I mean, it's like Matthew chapter 2 fits right in with that kind of wicked behavior. But we don't talk about it a lot. It's not very sentimental. It's nothing like chestnuts on the roasting, uh, you know, on the ro open fire. Um, but, you know, it's not talked a lot about in history books either. This isn't something that's, that's clearly recorded. And you might ask, well, wh why isn't this recorded? This seems so tragic and so, so terrible. And it should be for Herod. Th this is right in line with the kinds of things that Herod did. Herod was a crazy genius. And, and, and we mean like both of those, like scholars would say he was both of those. He was indeed a genius. Uh, his architectural feats are, inc they're incredible. And you can actually go see some of the, the remains of them, uh, the remnants still to this day. Uh, back when I got to go to the Holy Land, I got to see a few. I went to the, to the temple uh, in Jerusalem, and there's part of that temple that is still present. And you can see the size of the stones uh, that when Herod rebuilt the temple, the way that the way that he um, the way that he did it still kind of leaves them speechless. Uh, they don't quite they can't quite explain how that kind of work was done with the tools and the resources that they they had on hand. Uh, I mean, Herod certainly knew what he was doing. One of his palaces was called Herodium, and it's a, it's a circle, and we got to go see this place, and it was a palace, and it was incredible, and it sat up on this mound. And then down below was a huge swimming pool, like in the middle of the desert. And it's like, what in the world? How, how did they do that? How did they keep it clean? Where did they get the water? There's all kinds of questions and mysteries, and yet they did it. And it was a phenomenal, um, it, was a, it was phenomenal architecture. And so uh, there's other examples of Herod using those skills in really significant ways. But he was also crazy. He, he was a rageful murderer, and his exploits are so terrible and, and tragic. Um, history tells us that when he came into power, the first thing that he did was he killed everybody from the dynasty before him. Uh, so the Hasmonean dynasty, was that, that was who was reigning before Rome put Herod in charge. And as soon as Herod got in charge, he just killed them all. Because he didn't want anybody threatening 
his reign. Uh, at one point in his life, he executed half of the Sanhedrin, which, you know, the Sanhedrin is like the 70 priests. And so that means he, he, he killed 35 or 30 of them just because they annoyed him, just because they were giving him some trouble. Another time, he ordered 300 court nobles killed. Uh, one time, he decided he didn't trust his wife, so he had her executed. And then he turned around and executed her mom. Another point in time in his life, he had three of his sons executed because he didn't trust them. Um, when he was dying, he said, you know, I think that everyone should mourn my death. And so he ordered um, a, a large amount. And then other people were told, when I die, kill all of them so that this region will really mourn. Like, people should mourn that I'm dead, but probably not that many people are going to do it. But if I kill all these other leaders, then a lot of people will be crying, and other people will think they're crying for, for me. Now, I'm not joking about that, but they didn't do it. So fortunately, they didn't listen to him. After he died, they were like, that guy was literally crazy, and they, 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 didn't, they didn't do it. But if you put all that together, you, you can see a trajectory of a guy who, who was crazy and, so, uh, and murderous. And so when you think about, scholars assume that there was probably 20 to 30 infant boys under the age of three in that region at that time. So two, two to three dozen. It, it doesn't really seem to climb the ladder of Herod's crazy. He, he was doing things like this all the time. It, it's like maybe a footnote. It's just not going to get a lot of attention because Herod ruled like this. Herod was a murderous uh, he, he was a, a, a murderous king. And so the death threat to Jesus and to a village full of infant boys is tragic and wicked. But honestly, based on history, it's not that shocking that this guy would do that. So what's the result of Herod's threat? Well, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus flee to Egypt. They take off. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and they get out of there because the angel says, if you don't go, a tragedy is on the way. And you look at verses 15 and 16, and you find Savior starts his life as a refugee. That's where Jesus ends up, as, as a refugee. Your refugees, uh, th th those are people who have been forced to leave their country uh, in order to escape war or to escape persecution or a natural disaster. Th that is a long-standing category of suffering in our world. Re refugees have been around as long as the world has been around. It's been a, 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 a category of people who are suffering and hurting and they've been on the world because brokenness is on the world. And war and natural disasters and diseases have flooded the earth. And so this category of people who've had to flee their homes for their own safety is a long-standing category. And if you were to read through the Old Testament, you would find that time and time again, the Old Testament likes to refer to the big four. And the Old Testament calls on the people of God to care for the big four. And the big four are the poor, the sick, the fatherless, which includes widows, and the immigrant. Now look, not every immigrant, immigrant is a refugee, but every single refugee is an immigrant. They, they, they have left their home country. And so when the Old Testament looks at the people of God and calls them to have a heart of mercy, the Old Testament time and time again refers to those big four. The sick, the poor, the fatherless, and the immigrant. And God looks at his people and says, I want you to have an eye towards them. I want you to care for them. I want you to, I want you to go out of your way to make sure that they are fed, 
and that they are clothed and that they are cared for. And God has opened up opportunities for us as a church family to try to reflect that with, with two specific families. Uh, the Fauna family from Afghanistan and just uh, the, the opportunity that we've had over the last uh, 18 months, I guess it's been, uh, to, to be part of their story and to see the way that God's been at work to, to, to try to bring some stability uh, from a situation that was so unstable and so dangerous in Afghanistan. And they have settled here in Traverse City and in our church family. And we love having the, the Fauna family as, as part of our, of our church. And then more recently, Tanya and Alicia from, from, uh, from, from Ukraine. And what's going on there in, in Ukraine, it continues to break our hearts as Russia just continues to, uh, they do not let up. And a new push is happening this week, and just a lot of family. I brought Tanya and Alicia here, and uh, we're thrilled to have them be present with us too. And it's a, it, it, I think it should, should be an encouragement to our hearts that when God sees the category of refugee, it's like he was on that way before we were on that. He was on that way before uh, anybody was, you know, on the front line, you know, the headlines of the New York Times calling on, you know, refugee care. God, God cared about refugee care, and he still cares about it, and he still calls his people to care about it. Jesus was a refugee. Oh, what a powerful image. Maybe you're familiar with the ad campaign that's been ramping up called He Gets Us. One of those ads, one of those commercials is telling the story of a refugee, telling the story of Jesus from the perspective of a refugee. And it ends by saying, he gets us. Je Jesus knows what it's like. If you're a refugee, Jesus, Jesus knows what that's like. They might play tonight during the, during the Super Bowl. He, he knows what that's like. He was a refugee. You know, the New Testament says that he who is rich with heavenly riches, more than we could even imagine. Jesus left that and became poor. In Hebrews chapter 4, we are told that Jesus can sympathize with us. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He can sympathize with our journey. Boy, oh boy, can he ever sympathize with the journey of the refugee. It, it's possible that you've never heard that Jesus was in Egypt as an infant. It's possible that you never heard that he was a refugee. It's possible that you never heard the reason. But, but this story, this part of Jesus' story, has been and is, continues to be, a great comfort to so many people. Jesus knows what it's like. Jesus has been there. Jesus has experienced pain like this before. These verses have been precious to those who know what it's like to have to leave their home. They know the feeling of running for your life, maybe even if they've never had to literally run for their life. They know what it's like. Jesus does too. You know, we live at a time right now uh, where refugees and immigrants, man, it is such a hard time. Our border policy as a nation has been such a mess for so long, for years. It's not one president. It's multiple presidents over the years. The, the border right now is, uh, is a just a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a train wreck. If you have not been reading the, the details of, of the, 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 the conditions uh, that exist at our border, it should, it should break your heart. And as the people of God, man, that should be something that we pray about, that immigrants and refugees are not used as bargaining chips. Instead, that there's an effort to, to address the problem and to solve it. And even if it's not perfect, like try to make progress. Let me show you something pretty incredible. 
that Matthew does here in this passage that might be easy to miss. Matthew is presenting us with this reality that Jesus and his family had to run for their life, that they had to flee to a far-off place. They had to go back to Egypt, which if you know the storyline of the Bible, God's people were rescued out of Egypt. And now Jesus, the long-awaited king, is back in Egypt as, as a refugee. As Matthew interacts with this, and he tells us that Jesus got out of there, but Herod did come. His forces came, and they did slaughter all of those children. They did it. They killed all of those people. And in verse 16, it says, according to all they ascertained. Like, so so he took, his plan worked. He did it. I mean, he, he, he brought it to fruition. In verse 17, this is what Matthew tells us. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. You know, Matthew does not look at this and say, whew, Jesus got out. Let's go on to the next story. That is not what Matthew does at all. He says Jesus got out, but he says this is not something to gloss over. Rachel is weeping for her children. That's from the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is using Rachel as a personification of the nation of Israel. And Jeremiah is saying that as, there, as the people of Israel have been taken off into slavery, that Rachel, Israel, is weeping for her children because they are not. Rachel's weeping too. Our hearts should break. Our hearts should cry. Even, even though Jesus was rescued from this, Rachel is weeping too. There's tears to be shed. This is not the end of the story, but boy, oh boy, is it part of the story. And our weeping, our tears, our recognition of the severity of the conditions of the world say something. We should hate death, and we should hate war, and we should hate violence, and we should hate sickness. Again, even though it's not the end of the story, it should break our hearts. This is not how God created the world to be. And so God looks at his people and he calls upon his people, the people of God, to care for those who are in these conditions. And then to remember our Savior was one. Jesus was a refugee. So Mary, Joseph, and Jesus running for their lives. It's tragic. And this story has been a gift to those who know the feeling. Well, what's the feeling? I think it's right to say that the feeling is a feeling of fear. Man, we can all relate to that at some level. Mary and Joseph had some real reasons to fear here. And there's hints all over Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 2, Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, that Mary and Joseph were afraid. There were some real things going on in their life that were legitimate. Like, they, they were scared. There, there's a part of the reason why they were, they were in a situation for sure. Fear is all over. We have plenty of reasons to be afraid, too. Maybe you have a health situation going on, a report that you just got. Maybe it's, it's money. Maybe it's uh, a loss that you're experiencing in your life, a relationship that has been damaged. Maybe you get uptight and fearful about international stuff. We just talked about the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, uh, the ongoing complications in the Middle East. Ukraine and Russia, and then what, like whatever China is doing, who even knows what China is doing uh, with, with national security things. Maybe that stuff causes you to lose sleep. 
Maybe, maybe you say, yeah, I'm scared of all that stuff. Look, fear is a really powerful emotion. Fear, uh, fear produces worry and anxiety and despair. You've probably heard this before, but fear is almost, uh, you know, most frequently it produces either violence or silence, fight or flight. And it's ironic that those responses are so dramatically different. One person runs from it. The other person tries to fight it. One person responds with violence, the other, person, the other person runs away in silence. How do you respond to fear? Have you asked yourself why you do what you do? We, we've referenced this before uh, as a church family, but I think it's important to, to revisit ideas like this because they're helpful. There's a book called Crucial Conversations. And this book was written, uh, Lou, Lou asked me to read it a few years ago, and then uh, we just reread it this year. Uh, but it's a book that's, that's written to help people have hard conversations. And, and the authors suggest that as we go through the world, we see and we hear a lot of different things. We, we go through all these different uh, experiences. And some of those things that we go through, as we see them or hear them, they cause our emotions to swirl, and then we act in response to those emotions. And so our basic experience of that is where we, we experience something all these emotions come up, and then we respond. We, we act. So experience, emotions, action. In those moments, you might find yourself saying something like, I don't know, that just makes me so mad. And you might be looking at them and being like, why does that make you so mad? Like this. That person just a $100 reaction to a $10 problem. You're like, why, why, why are you so mad? And you might just be like, I don't know, it just makes me mad. Well, well, the authors of Crucial Conversations, they suggest that what's going on is that we recognize three steps, but there's actually four steps that happen. And there's a, a kind of a hidden step that is easy for us to ignore, and it's, it's crucial. What is this missing step? So here's what they say. We, we, we go through experiences. We see something. We hear something. And then almost instantaneously, we tell ourselves a story. So this event happens. I see it. I hear it. I experience it. And then almost like a lightning bolt, I have a storyline that I'm living. I have a story that I'm the main character in, that I'm, that's front and center. And as soon as that experience happens, I tell myself this story. And then the emotions are a reaction to that story. And then the actions flow from the emotions that are stirred. And these authors are simply inviting us to say, what if you slowed down enough to ask yourself, what's the story that you're telling yourself? Everybody saw that guy cut that person off. Why are you going crazy? Or fill in the blank. Why are you reacting to that experience the way you're reacting to that experience? What story are you telling yourself? And fill in the blank. It might make you mad. It might make you offended. It might make you hopeless. It might make you scared. But what is the story that you are most frequently telling yourself then? What, what, there's a story there. For some, it's, um, I guess they had something come up. We'll do it next week. For others, it's, I'm not good enough. I don't matter. That person doesn't care about me. They wouldn't keep our appointment. That stirs up quite a bit of emotions, doesn't it? And then your reaction is a rude text. 
telling them you don't ever want to see them again, or, you know, whatever. Take your lunch and shove it, you know? <clears throat> What's the story you tell yourself when you read the daily news? What's your story when you tell yourself when you look at your retirement? What's the story you tell yourself when you look at your last cancer screening? What's the story you tell yourself when something bad happens to you? You see what I'm saying? H have you considered if that story is true, if every part of that story is true? Have you considered if it's the only possible story? You know, this is one thing that counselors and ca can, can help you with, is help you process what, what is it that you think is happening right here? And that can happen like a lightning bolt, and we often don't realize that step in the process. Mary and Joseph were experiencing incredible fear. The last few years in our world have created a ton of fear and a lot of hopelessness. If you are a Christian, the Bible has a ton to say about the story that you tell yourself. A ton to say about the story you can tell yourself as you experience the world. Let, let, let me show you. This is a tragic and wicked attempt to kill Jesus. We, we, like, that is crystal clear. It, and Rachel weeps. <laughs> Rachel weeps too. It, was it is appropriate for us to be brokenhearted. But this threat on Jesus' life is not the first attempt to wipe him out. This is actually inviting us back into the very storyline of the Bible that we traced throughout the year 2022, the story of stories. If you were here for that series, you, you know that as we walked through each of those chapters, what we began to see was that in Genesis 1 and 2, God created this perfect world where God and, and creation were in right relationship, and man and God were in perfect communion, and they walked together and talked together, and all was right. And then in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, instead of trusting God, chose to do it their own way. Instead of obeying God and trusting Him and resting in Him, they said, no, we'll do our own thing. And as soon as they did that, sin broke into the world. And sin contaminated the world. And God comes to Adam and Eve right there in Genesis 3 and says, it's going to be so much worse than you think it is. I know I told you not to do it and that you were going to die. Everything's damaged. Everything's broken. Your relationship with me is broken. Creation's relationship with creation is broken. Humanity's relationship with humanity is broken. It's all broken, and it's going to devolve. It's going to get worse. This is going to spread across the globe. And as we walk through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, what we begin to see is that God, in that moment when he said, as bad as this is, he says, I'm going to fix it. I'm, I'm going to fix it. It's, it's a problem that's bigger than Adam. You can solve Eve. You, can't, you guys can't solve it. But through one of the children of Eve, one of the offspring of Eve, I am going to crush that serpent, crush Satan, and make this world right again. That's what I'm going to do. And the rest of the Bible is revealing to us that there is an enemy who does not want to see this world remade. And at every turn of that story of God's work to make this world right, is someone trying to thwart that story, trying to stop it. So the promise is that one of Eve's children is going to crush Satan, Cain and Abel. They're born, and what immediately happens? Cain is tempted by Satan to kill Abel, and he does. Abel's out of the picture. Because Cain killed Abel, Cain is now cursed. He's out of the picture. And you could just imagine Satan saying, oh, yeah, Eve's, Eve's offspring are going to crush me. Yeah, right, I'll crush them. And then there's this incredible verse of hope in Genesis chapter 4 that says, Eve bore affirmation that God's going to keep his promise. But it's not Seth either. 
And we trace the line and you go further down and this line of Eve shows up and the world is terrible. By Genesis 6, everything is corrupted. God says it's, it, it probably isn't even worth a remodel. Let's just bail on the whole thing. And yet he ends up saving Noah through the ark, Noah and his family, and again preserves the seed of Eve. And time after time throughout the Old Testament, we see God intervening and acting in a way to preserve the line that would eventually crush Satan and make the world right. Now, fast forward to Matthew chapter 2. What's Satan been trying to do? He's been trying to wipe out the seed of Eve all along. Did you check out that, that genealogy in chapter 1? Do you see what's being said about this guy? The wise men? The prophecies? You don't think that Satan is on the, tra on, on, on the trail here? You don't think that he recognizes, like, oh, no, this is another one in the line. Let's wipe him out, too. Along comes Herod. He says, let's kill all the boys. Let's wipe out any possibility that this son could survive. Again, scholars estimate that there's probably between 20 and 30 boys that would have been in that category. And Herod was willing to kill every single one of them in order to get to Jesus. But an angel warned Mary and Joseph even before Herod had his plans and said, get out of there. And again, the seed was pres preserved. Look at how long this story has taken to unfold. I mean, it's at least, look at how many scary moments were to Jesus, at least, probably more. Look at how much patience it demanded from the people of God. And yet God was faithfully at work in the scariest of moments. You see, the story of the Bible is a story of waiting, of close calls, of suffering, of patience. It's patience in the face of the unknown, patience in the face of fear. And no, this is not the first time that Satan tries to orchestrate the destruction of Jesus. Satan tries to get Jesus to disqualify himself. We'll see this in Matthew chapter 4. He tries to get the religious leaders to kill him. He tries to get the Roman leaders to kill him. And finally, he gets one of Jesus' insiders to betray him. And it works. He gets a kangaroo court to convict him. And in Matthew chapter 27, we find out that the seed of Eve does not crush Satan. Satan crushes the seed. Jesus is arrested, killed, and buried. End of the story, right? No way. Wrong. In, in the greatest twist in the history of the world, Jesus rose from the dead. And when he did, he crushed sin and Satan and death and all of our enemies establishing the only means by which creation can be reunited to its creator. The promise of Genesis 3 is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus at the end of Matthew's gospel. That is a long time. That is a long time where God is at work in the world in his sovereign purposes that we often don't understand, and yet he is faithful to keep his promise. This is the bright light of the gospel that shines into the dark night of our fear. It seems hopeless so many times. And yet, God was faithfully at work in those scary moments, keeping his promise. You know, all those close, call, close calls in the Old Testament, they don't hold a candle to Jesus dying on the cross and being buried. I mean, I can't imagine the, 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 uh, the disciples' response to that. And yet, even in that moment, on Holy Saturday, as Jesus is buried in the ground, God was at work. So yeah, it requires some patience. These last years have required patience. Today requires patience. 
You may have a situation in your life right now that requires patience. Look at this situation. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus end up in Egypt as refugees, and they are told to wait until what? I'll let you know. That's what verse 13 says. The angel says, hey, you're, there's a threat on your life. Go to Egypt, and uh, uh, don't call me. I'll call you. Like, I'll let you know. Now, it was uh, related to when Herod would die, but they, didn't, they weren't told that, it doesn't seem. Just go to Egypt until, until, you're, until you're summoned. Think about the amount of patience that took for Mary and Joseph to be away from family for that long. One year goes by, two years go by, and sometime finally in their third year in Egypt, after Herod dies, this too, you know, in verse 6, Matthew says you can return. But Herod, his death was really terrible. It was really, really terrible. And Matthew doesn't dance on his grave. Matthew doesn't be like, look at what happens to God's enemies. No, he just says, Herod died. That's, that part of the story's over. And he turns our attention to the way that God is at work in the world, the, prophet, uh, the prophecies that are being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So it requires patience. So many unknowns. But we don't have to be afraid. You, you, you don't have to be afraid. You may have really legitimate concerns, health concerns, financial concerns, relational concerns. Mary and Joseph did too. And some things are legitimately scary. They are legitimately scary. And Rachel weeps too. We hate that brokenness. We hate war and we hate violence and we hate death. But what is the story that you're telling yourself? What, what is the ultimate story that informs what you're seeing and what you're hearing? Do, do you know what the worst case scenario for a Christian is? It is life eternal with God in a remade world where there is no sin, sorrow, suffering, or death. That is the worst case scenario for the Christian. That's the story that you're living in. A story where you have a God, uh, the God of heaven, who keeps his promises, whose faithfulness is on record. Maybe you've heard this. The Bible says the phrase, fear not or do not fear, hundreds of times, and I'm not joking. Like, literally, the Bible uses the phrase, fear not or do not be afraid, hundreds of times. And I could say, maybe that bothers you. Maybe you look at that and you're like, man, don't you know this is scary stuff? It is really scary stuff. And Jesus would look at you and say, I know. I, I know that it's scary stuff, and I'm not saying that it's not scary. What he's offering you is something more fundamental. Because the Bible doesn't say just don't fear. The Bible says don't fear because. Be because you don't hold tomorrow. Jesus holds tomorrow. Because you don't have to hold the future. Jesus holds the future. You don't have to secure your place in the story. Jesus already secured your place in the story. When the Bible is inviting us to not fear, what the Bible is saying is not saying that the storm isn't, isn't uh, raging around us. Yes, it is. Rachel weeps about that too. It's heartbreaking. But there is a fundamental truth about what this story is and where this story is headed and what your place in it is that you are invited to recenter yourself on and let it lead you to joy. You know, I love to think about this as it backfilling. That when we see how the story of the world is going to unfold, when we see the trajectory, it's like it floods back into this very moment. 
and opens our eyes to the truest true. So do not fear, because while we hate death and violence and war, it does not get the last word. What Jesus did for us in his life, death, and resurrection crushed death, conquered death. He is the victor, and what he has won for us is life eternal with God. You know, Jesus' genealogy in chapter 1 had an up-down-up shape to it. Grace, there was these figures in the genealogy that don't belong there, but they get welcomed in. It's a beautiful picture of grace. And then there's this trajectory toward exile. And then there's this, uh, again, this hopefulness in response to God's faithfulness of keeping his promise. A lot of scholars see that same shape in chapter 2. Incredible grace with the Magi. They're not Jewish, and yet they get to meet the King of Kings. And then incredible tragedy and judgment in the person and death of Herod. And then it ends with the, the upswing again of the faithfulness of God, protecting Christ, uh, the, the Christ child so that he could, in a very short period of time, go to the cross and provide for us what we need. As we come to the table and we break the bread and drink the cup, the invitation today is to recognize that this is the moment. This is the culmination of that whole story where it actually crushed the person and work of our greatest enemy. Satan, death, sin, all of it destroyed when this Jesus went to the cross, breaking his body, spilling his blood, so that we might be reunited to God. If our servants will please come, let's pray. God, thanks for this text and for the, the, the comfort in the middle of hardship, for the confidence that we can have even when we face the hardest things. God, I know that not everyone in this room is facing the same severity of situations. God, we know we, we're, we, we are thrilled to have with us and among us some who are in literal situations of, uh, where they are refugees from their homeland. God, we thank you that they're here. We thank you that they have food and clothes and a place to live. But God, our hearts break for them. Just like Rachel weeps, we, we, we weep too. God, I think of some of the faces in this room with, with medical challenges that sit in front of them, some with financial challenges that, that sit in front of them, some with relationship challenges that, that sit in front of them. God, those things are not easy. And they, are, they can weigh heavy on our souls. But God, would you help us to reorient the story that we tell ourselves? Would you help us to see that this is not a short-term journey? That this life, even the decades that we get here, is just a blink. It's just the cover and the title page of a story that goes on forever and ever. In which every chapter is better than the one before it. God, would you give us a perspective that sees the bigger picture? that sees what Christ has done for us, and that we are not alone. In Jesus' name we pray.